As we come now to the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be this morning in Exodus chapter 12. I know we've uh, been a, a couple of weeks in other places, which is good, uh, but now we're back here in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Lord, your word tells us that you are not slow in fulfilling your promises, but you are patient with us. Lord, by your patience, would you draw us near to you? And through your word, would you produce in us faith and repentance and obedience? Cause us now to worship you as God. We ask your guidance by your spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've wrestled with exactly what uh, verses to read here. Uh, we will take this in a little odd section. We'll read these first 13 verses and then skip a bit uh, to, to later on in the chapter, but we will come back and catch those verses we missed next week. Uh, but we'll begin here in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 21. When then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, 
and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is the word of God. Now, there are only maybe a handful of moments in a lifetime where the whole course of our lives change and nothing is ever the same again. Most of those moments come without notice, but what if you knew that on a particular night your life would be changed forever? Because on this night, this night here that we've read about, this is the night of the 10th plague and of the Passover. And this is for the people of Israel, one of those completely life-changing moments. Israel had now by this point spent 430 years enslaved in Egypt, but tonight Pharaoh will finally let my people go. And the people of Israel knew that this day was coming. The Lord had even prepared them for it. He built a whole system even around this very day, and he called that system Passover. So we're going to spend two Sundays here with this, uh, this part of the chapter to look at the Passover. Today we'll look at this first Passover, what happened on this very night in Egypt. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at future Passovers how this was to be carried out yearly as a holiday for them. The central event here, which is where we get the name Passover, comes from the particular act of the Lord this very night. It's in a a verse we didn't read, verse 27. You shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. That the Lord struck some, but passed over others. That's what happens this night. And to help us understand what the Lord is actually doing here, we're going to divide the Passover then into three aspects. If you take notes, uh, this is a, a little help to you. Three aspects here that we'll look at. How they were to prepare the Passover, how they were to partake in the Passover, and how they were protected in the Passover. How to prepare the Passover, how to partake in the Passover, and how they were protected in the Passover. So let's get after it, all right? Let's look now here. How were they to prepare the Passover? The main thing that they were to do is to keep a lamb. Verse 6, you can see it if you're interested. You should keep a lamb. They could also use goats, but the lambs were the most common one. And the lamb was the, the, the centerpiece of the Passover. Everything sort of revolved around that. In fact, the word Passover in the scripture can refer to the holiday. The whole week of Passover is sometimes called Passover. The word Passover can refer to the meal 
that they eat, the Jews now sometimes call a Seder meal, or Passover can refer to the lamb itself. So it's fitting to say that the lamb is the Passover. And they weren't just to use any lamb. There's some specifics about which ones they could choose from. There's specifics about its gender. It was to be a male. About its age, it was to be uh, a year old. And its health, that it was to be without blemish. And none of those particulars were to affect the taste, really, or the quality of the meal. These were symbolic qualifications. So they were supposed to choose this fitting lamb, whichever one they choose. But the important part is that they were to keep it. For four days. It doesn't tell us how that worked. You know, make a little bed for it in your living room. I don't know what it was, but they were to keep it separate somehow for four days, from the 10th day of the month to the 14th day. And this shows us that the Lord had thoroughly instructed the people in this prior to the night of the Passover. The, the fact that they were to keep it for four days up to the night of shows that they had some prior instruction. We don't know exactly when the Lord told them all these things, but there was enough time for them to understand and to prepare for this very night. So when the night of Passover arrives, there's a lot of very significant things that happen in a very short amount of time, all in one night. But this night was not just a night of panic, night of last-minute rush, afraid you're going to be too late or somehow you would miss the Passover and not catch up to it. This is not like, you know, the scene in Home Alone, the Christmas movie, where the whole family's running through the airport because they slept in and, and they're going to miss their plane. That's not happening here. They were to keep the animal well before so that they'd be prepared. That was part of the preparation. Also part of the preparation is that they were to gather houses. You might have noticed here that no one ate the Passover meal alone. None of them. Even if you're single, even if you're widowed, even if you have a very small family, they were to combine in groups to meet under one roof. It's in verse 4. Let me read it again. If the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall, according to the house, uh, to the number of persons, gather, and you shall make account for the lamb. So they gathered based on how much everybody thought they could eat. <laughs> Doesn't this remind you if you've ever prepared a meal for a big group? You, know, you have to kind of count heads. You know, if you have a big kind of informal gathering and you're going to you know, order pizza or something, you go, how, how much do you think you can eat? How much do you think you can eat? And we'll figure out how much pizza to order. Except here, instead of adjusting the amount of food to how many people you have, they adjusted the amount of people that would gather to the food. So it's as if we've got one big pizza, there's one lamb, and we're going to gather the right number of people around it, but no one, no one ate alone. There was always group gathering. All of this shows, again, that this needed to be prearranged ahead of time, and it was designed then in the Passover to be communal. They were supposed to do this together. Even all the individual households that were gathering around their own individual lamb that was kept, all the individual houses were put in sync. They were all told to kill their lamb at the same time, to kill the lamb at twilight so that it would show that they were one body doing this together. And finally, in their preparations, that they were supposed to roast 
the lamb. The instructions even tell uh, exactly how they were to cook it. It says uh, in verse 9, don't eat it raw, which that makes sense. That's unhealthy. But also don't boil it, which would have been the far more common way to prepare a lamb. You know, if you boil, you have to draw the water. You have to make sure the water's heated up and boiling. And, you know, you've got pots now and other utensils to work with to make sure that the lamb is prepared properly. That's a typical way to boil. But with roasting, you need none of those things, just a, a fire pit. And so this preparation for the first Passover was also designed for efficiency. It was simpler to roast. It was quicker to roast because this very night, their lives are about to be changed forever. That's how they were to prepare it. So now how were they to partake of this Passover? Even though speed is a factor in the Passover meal, it's not their only concern. It's not even their primary concern. They, it's not like, hey guys, uh, we've got a busy night ahead, so I want you to slap together some peanut butter and jelly and call it good. That's what I would have done, I think. Panic meal is peanut butter and jelly. Uh, but the Passover is a full sit-down meal. And the point of this meal is not only to feed them, although that's part of it, it is to speak to them. The meal itself is telling them things through its symbolism. So the Passover meal has very specific side dishes that go with it. Macaroni and cheese, little baked beans. This one, with the lamb, you didn't have the options of size. With the lamb, you had to give two things. One, bitter herbs, which would have been a sort of not tasty side salad, and unleavened bread, what we now call matzah, which looks a lot more like a cracker than what we think of as bread. So these bitter herbs and this unleavened bread, neither one of them are particularly tasty. If you've ever had matzah, it's pretty bland. Uh, but these are not chosen for how delicious they are. Uh, they're chosen for other reasons, to speak to us. We don't know exactly why the bitter herbs are part of it. The scripture is less clear on that one. Maybe there's a guess about its reflection of the bitterness that Egypt was, but we don't really know. What the text does tell us is quite a bit about the unleavened bread. Couldn't just be any bread. It had to be unleavened, flat. And part of that is because unleavened bread is quicker it doesn't need all the time of preparation to rise. That's part of the reason for it. It's a little more efficient. It'll be easier for the night in which they're about to travel. But it's not just about speed. We know this because in future Passovers, they were to bake unleavened bread every day for a whole week and eat it every day. They were even supposed to rid their entire house of leaven, look for all the yeast and get it out of the house altogether. So this shows that it's not just about being faster. The unleavened bread symbolizes a break with the old. If you're baking bread in this context here, leavened bread, you've got a little ball of your leavened dough, and it rises because of the yeast. And the way you would prepare for tomorrow's bread is before you cook today's is you pinch off a piece of it, and you set it aside because within that bread is some yeast that's still living 
It's a starter for tomorrow's bread. It remains alive and active from day to day. So you would pinch off a piece to prepare for tomorrow, but not with unleavened bread. You don't need yesterday's starter to do today's unleavened bread. The point is to get out the old dough. It's a sign here of newness of a clean break with the old, that life is going to be different now. So they were to partake then with this lamb and these two side dishes. They also, in partaking, were told to finish the lamb. There's no, like, Tupperware, you know, with the spaghetti sauce lining at the bottom. There's no Tupperware here. There's no tinfoil Uh, They were supposed to finish the meal. This is similar to the way, you know how when you're getting ready to go on vacation, you clean out the fridge and try to use up what what you've got. They were were told, do not leave any of it until the morning because you're not going to have breakfast here in Egypt. Breakfast time will be somewhere else. And in addition to that, they weren't even supposed to pack it up in a little travel cooler for their trip. That's what my intuition would be. If we're going to be traveling, we need a little extra. So don't need it all. Pack it up and it'll go with you. But, but in verse 10, it says, whatever, let me find, where is it? Whatever uh, you can't eat, don't let any of it remain until the morning. Whatever you can't eat, you shall burn, the Lord says. So the Passover was designed to be a meal that we share, but then also a meal that we totally leave behind. That's part of how they were to partake. Finally, one of the most interesting things about how they were to partake this meal is what they wore to the table. The text is very specific. It's in verse 11, that they were to have their belt fastened. That's different than belts that we kind of think. Belts there, if you're at home in their context, you wear your cloak, and your cloak is long, and typically it's loose, and it's a little more comfortable. But if you're traveling, you tuck up your cloak into your belt, so that it'll be a little more functional, so it won't get in the way as you travel. So with your belt fastened, with your sandals on, in this context, you'd leave your sandals at the door so you're not tracking things all over in your house, but this meal, put your sandals on, and then finally, you're to eat with your staff in hand. Not just staff sitting at the door so you can get it on the way out. Hold it as you eat. Can you imagine then what chaos, those of you that cook meals, what sort of chaos that would be around the table? Everybody's got their staff and it's kind of clacking against the table and kids are poking each other with it. This would have been striking for the people there. For some of us, we might think, you know, this is a violation of all the table manners we've ever been taught. Uh, But this would have shown that something about this meal is very different than any other. Even the kids would have noticed something is different here. We might imagine the kids asking questions around the Passover table. Mama, why are we wearing our shoes? Are we going somewhere? Yes, sweetheart, we're going somewhere. Before the sun comes up, we're leaving Egypt. Mama, will we come back? No, sweetheart. 
We're not coming back. The Lord Yahweh is taking us to a place where we will be free and not slaves. Mama, where are we going? I don't know, sweetheart. But the Lord says it will be a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, shh. And eat your matzah and bitter herbs. And stop hitting your brother with your staff. You could see how this would all feel different. They're even told in the text, verse 11, to eat the meal in haste. In haste, they're to eat. That doesn't mean they had to wolf it down. There's not going to be a mad dash out of Egypt. But they also weren't supposed to dally. They'd have plenty of time to eat. But not play around. This is not a sort of meal that you make a cup of coffee afterward. So it's not a meal where you sit and enjoy dessert around nice conversation. This is a, a, the Passover meal is designed for readiness. That they would feel that their lives were about to be changed in the coming journey. So that's how they were to prepare and how they were to partake. But here's, here's the main part then of the Passover, how they were protected in this particular way. The chilling event of the 10th plague and the death of all of the firstborn in the land is still to come, but it will come in this chapter. It's coming in verse 29 as the beginning of it. We're not quite there yet, but here it's described. It's described as coming that night, and it's described in very eerie terms that give me goosebumps. That this night in Egypt, a figure will go through the land. And here in verse 23, he's just called the destroyer. The destroyer is the one who will pass through. The identity of this destroyer is mysterious. It seems as if this person, creature, is some sort of angel. In fact, uh, it's probably maybe the angel of the Lord. Some translations even translate the destroyer as the death angel, although that's not quite fitting to the text. But here's this destroyer, and this person is not going against the Lord. This destroyer is God's agent who is acting according to the will and authority of the Lord. And the, the destroyer enters into each house to put to death all the firstborn, except certain houses. Certain houses the destroyer is not even able to enter. The destroyer passes over the ones who are in the midst of Passover. So it's not as if the destroyer goes inside with a sort of clipboard with a checklist to see if they followed the instructions of the Lord. You know, let's see, do you have the proper side dishes? You got the bit of herbs? Check. You got the unleavened bread? Check. Are you dressed, ready to go? Check. Okay, good. Did you boil the lamb? Ah. Too bad. Nope. You're, you know, you're supposed to roast it. Are you, uh, have, you, have you eaten it all? You know, have you been efficient and ready this night? That's not what's happening here. The destroyer's only interaction 
with these whom he passes over is that he sees the outside of the house. And their only protection from the destroyer is that their doorway is marked with blood. Let me read again what happens here, just so we can feel it. Verse 22, the Lord says, Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, and touch the lentil, that is the top, and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lentil and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over and the door will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. I wonder, I wonder what this felt like for the people inside these houses. We don't know. We could guess. Could they tell when the destroyer was near, was in their neighborhood? Could they feel it, hear it? Did they wonder if the blood on their doorpost would be enough to protect them? Because that's all that really stands between an Israelite and the destroyer. It's this little smear of blood on the door. That's it. And this isn't just like a magical potion to ward off death. There's nothing uh, magic about the blood. The blood itself has no power. It's not a hex or a charm. The blood on the, dr- the door is instead described this way in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. The point of the blood, the way that it was to protect them in the Passover is as a sign. Now, why? Why is the blood a sign? I mean, we know that the Lord doesn't need any sort of visible sign to distinguish who to strike down and who to spare. We've already seen him in the previous plague set Israel apart. He's already protected them from flies and disease and hail and the constant darkness, and he didn't need any sort of visible sign or blood on the doorpost for those things, so why now? What is the sign of the blood pointing to? It's a number of things, but just two that I'll highlight, and then we'll be done. What is the blood a sign pointing to? The blood is a sign that says, death is here. The blood is a sign that says, death is here. After the destroyer has completed his work of judgment, we're told in verse 30 of this chapter, at the very end of it, that there was not a house where someone was not dead. We'll get to that in a few weeks, but there was not a house in which someone was not dead. And you might notice then that that is true of every house, not just Egyptian houses that death was in the houses of the Israelites too. It's just that the death in their houses was the death of the chosen lamb. 
The people of God are not just immune or exempt from the judgment of death. It's that they received a substitute for the judgment of death. So this sign of blood is telling the destroyer that the work of death has already come here. Death has already been put upon here, so pass over. And this framework of substitution for death is then the basis for the whole Old Testament system of priests and sacrifices, that these animal substitutes that for centuries then the people of Israel would bring is that they were to bring this animal as a substitute for their own sin, for their own judgments, that the work of sin or the judgment for sin is done here, that it's put upon this animal here. It's done now, at least for now. That at least until sin demands death again, the death for now is completed. So in the New Testament then, when, when Paul says that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, what's new about that, what's revolutionary about that, is not just that he has been sacrificed, that he's a substitute. That's not new. We've already seen that in the Passover. What's new about Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice is that he is the substitute forever. That the blood has been put on the doorpost once and for all. The author of Hebrews uh, puts it this way. If I can find it in Hebrews chapter 9, just a single verse here, verse um, 12. The author says, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That the blood of Jesus has a similar function except that it does not fade. It is final. The blood of Jesus then posts on the doorposts of our hearts a sign that says, death has been here. The work of judgment is done here, so move along, destroyer. Pass over and don't come back because the work is finished now once and for all in Jesus. The blood of the Passover is a sign that death is here. But it's not only that. It's not only a sign of death. It is also a sign of life in a sense. The sign says death is here, but the blood sign also says Faith is here. Faith is here. We know the Lord calls his people to very specific things in the Passover. This night of Passover, they weren't to just wait. They didn't just sit in their houses and do a puzzle until morning comes. They were called to do all these specific things, to prepare in a particular way, to gather in a particular way, to cook in a particular way, to partake in a particular way, the foods that are particular, clothes that are particular. They were even to put the blood in particular places on the door. And if they did not obey in those things, at least in the matter of blood on the door, they may be exposed to the judgment of the destroyer. But, but, 
we know that it was not the obedience itself that saved them. Their obedience in the act of dipping the blood and posting it on the door is a sign, it is a testimony to their faith in God. To see the blood was the evidence to show that they believed what he had said to them. That they trusted that what he said would be true, that the blood would protect them. Just like the words of James, that this was their living faith which is completed by their work. That's why the summary of the whole Passover event, the author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 11, verse uh, verse 28, by faith, this is now talking about Moses, but also by extension all the people, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. They kept the Passover, of course. They obeyed, they followed in the acts of the Passover, but all of it was by faith. So then the sign of the blood on the door was saying both death is here, but also faith is here. There are only a handful of moments in a lifetime where the whole course of life changes and nothing is ever the same again. And most of those moments come without notice. When these moments come to the doorstep of your heart, what will the sign on your doorpost say? May it be true of each of us that the sign says in bright red letters both that the death of Christ is here and also that faith in Christ is here. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that our salvation can never be earned by our own obedience that you rescue us as an act of mercy and sacrifice, that you have died in our place as an act of love. Would you help us now in that reality to trust you, to put faith in you, in your life, in your death, and in your resurrection. Lord, would you produce hope and confidence in you through these things? We do trust you and praise you In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.